Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, uh, free as a... Oh, <laughs> um, ah, boy. Caca, Is it just free as a bird? No, 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 uh, free as the Double Loop Podcast, uh... You know, all of our, our new episodes and, and going back a couple of years are, are all free. Uh, we just ask uh, that patrons uh, contribute a, a buck or so uh, to get access to all the old ones, uh, just to help us uh, with new equipment and hosting space. Cool. All right. Mine is, uh, well, I, I, it's weird because I jumped into, is this like free as an Englishman who's not being taxed by their, I, I wasn't like totally historical. I was. I was, way off. I was <laughs> way off, you know, liberty and justice or give me death or taxes or, I don't or, know. or that, or that Beatles song, uh, you know, that came out in the nineties. I don't know what you're referring to. You don't, you don't remember that one. Okay. There, when the, I'm a huge Beatles the, fan. So I, I'm, I'm kind of shocked when the, when the box set first came out, the like Beatles one, I think it was the album in the, in the late nineties, mid to late nineties, there was a new single that was released called free as a bird huh. that, that's used vocals from John from back in the day. And then uh, the rest of them did their, I think did some new lay down the new parts of their tracks. And, hmm. and uh, yeah. anyway, right. look it up folks. Free as a bird by the Beatles from the nineties. I think I was, I think there's like a Nelly Furtado song or something. That's like free as a bird. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, yeah. All right. No, I know that. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. All right. So mine is apropos to today. Better late than never. <laughs> well, that's incomplete. It's better late than never that you eventually do contribute to the Double Loop Podcast at Patreon.com. Yes, better late than never. And uh, speaking of contributors, uh, big thanks uh, to to Scott, to Philippe, and to Natalie, who've all uh, begun uh, contributing at uh, patreon.com slash double loop podcast. So thank you very much, guys. Yeah, cool. Uh, so better late than never, huh? Yeah. Um, it's been a... <laughs> Shall we explain? <laughs> yeah. Um, man, it has been a... For, I think both of us, it just... I mean, usually if there's... If it, one of the other of us gets busy, you know, the other one can kind of adapt. But I think we've both been um, been been hit by the busy bug here recently. Um, uh, for me, like I said uh, in recent episodes, I started a new job, and um, uh, that's you know, when I'm here uh, doing my um, doing my work, which is about half of the month. Um, I'm working really long shifts and. Uh, it is virtually impossible to get anything done besides working and sleeping. Um, and then uh, I've been uh, on the road teaching um, or uh, writing new classes or new lectures. I've had to do a bunch of that. And then at the uh, conference, California State Division Conference, which we've got to circle back around to as well. Yeah. So it, it's just been a crazy busy time. So thank you everyone out there for being patient and uh uh, I'm waiting for uh, this new episode uh, to come on out. Yeah, we will. We will make this up here by trying to get a bunch of episodes together. It's just, and like as you're saying, I have never been this busy in my life, which is great. This is not a complaint. I mean, you know, when <laughs> I I left the my state agency, I was a little terrified, nervous that uh, things wouldn't all come together. But 
I, I've been on the road now for the last four weeks. I keep coming home for, for a weekend day, but then you and I can't seem to sync up there. And right. then I'll be back on the road again. And I don't think I, I'm not home for an entire week until July from here on out. And that's, <laughs> and that, and that's been, Mar- yeah, March till literally the end of June. Just ev- every week I'm at least gone for four days, three to four days in that week. It's been crazy. Well, like you said, it's good to be busy, yep. and uh, but um, yeah, we we gotta we gotta make sure to to set aside the time for our our listeners. And I think once we kind of both get into the rhythm of uh, of this kind of busy, that uh, that everything will will smooth out, and uh, we'll be able to get on a um, on a pretty good schedule. Now that uh, you've also gotten into the editing, and you know, it's just now a matter of recording when we have the chance maybe a few episodes at a time and then uh, and then spacing out those uh, releases throughout the uh, the month right and uh syncing up our podcast menstrual cycle that's what we need to do we need to sync sync up our cycles here oh didn't see that one coming uh, no no i didn't see that one coming at all uh um that's it's funny because um uh, I don't know if we've mentioned the the, the our the episode. Maybe we did the episode for, that we recorded with the um, our friends, uh, the Wine and Crime ah, podcast. Yes, that's very much a, one of the comments that they would uh, make. The, the ladies that record that one. That that's <laughs> that's their kind of humor. Not just that they're ladies. So, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, very true. Very true. Um, so California so, division. Yes. Well, for, uh, first, let me talk first about my uh, classes in Florida. I was down in Miami, got some great Cuban food. Man, those folks at um, Broward County are, that is a fantastic group. Yep, they are. They really are. Uh, they're showing me pictures of like Halloween costumes. Uh-huh. And man, they are all out with those costumes. Like, and every single one of them, the entire Avengers crew. Like they do a whole theme with the whole like that's that's really amazing. But then also just a great group that seems to work really well together and uh, and you know enjoy working and laughing together and, and everything like that. Yeah. Yep. You know, did exclusionology down there? Kind of exclusionology 2.0 revamped, uh, up to date version of the class went over really well. Got some some uh, some great feedback and uh, even the couple people that came up from Miami Dade. You know, went back and and uh, got emails from their bosses. Uh, you know, talking about how how everyone went back to their agency, just you know, all sorts of new ideas and and new ways of looking at comparison, comparing. And that was just great to hear that kind of feedback. And then went to in the second half of the week did the gyro and Photoshop uh, class, and uh, got uh, got some some people you know, more interested in doing gyro and doing it more on a, on a regular basis, uh, for, for their comparisons. Cause it's, you know, now it's just easier way to, uh, to do that. Basically just as easy as using all the same color, uh, with these actions in Photoshop. So yeah, I'm just super excited about, about the feedback from, you know, these, these two, well, one brand new and one uh, new version of the classes. Uh, and then in California, the California State Division. Now, I just wanted to jump in and say again, I, it, 
I was really glad to hear that the gyro workshop went well. I yeah. I made a couple of references to it in the last few weeks in some of the presentations I was making. I was teaching in Louisiana uh, last week, so shout out to my Baton Rouge folks. They were uh, <laughs> they were awesome as usual. And uh, one of the questions came up in class is, Glenn, do you really think that you'd need to do gyro, you know, for all these latents? And is it really necessary, you know, for, for everyone, even easy ones? And, you know, my answer is, yeah, actually, it is. I mean, it doesn't take that much time. And even if there's an abundance of features, you can mark 12 to 16 features and say, you know, these are representative of the features I observe. There are many more available. So, I mean, just even marking anywhere between, like you said, some people are going to mark you know, maybe 12, 16, and even if they're single colors, you can switch now pretty quickly with what you're teaching between multiple colors. And honestly, as long as you, as long as you already work in a digital environment, this is, this isn't that much more to add. Admittedly, if you currently don't do anything and everything is on a lift and you just look through a glass and don't document your exams at all, uh, you got bigger problems than, uh, not having time to, to mark gyro. Uh, yeah, the, the and the thing with these gyro tools, which you, the, you can get the free version from my website, rayforensics.com. There's a video there on how to install it, uh, but it makes it take just no extra time at all to to use different colors uh, as the same color. So as long as you're, like you said, working on screen, uh, you can switch between the colors. And yeah, even if you're only going up to 15 or 20, because the you know the latent is really good. Uh, you you get even in this two day class, people were basically you know quickly in this habit of using the gyro colors, and you quickly get really good at switching between the colors, deciding um, which one to use. And uh, along those lines, I think one of the really important aspects of using gyro and what we do in this class is uh, to get feedback. So if you're you know, if you're kind of feeling like you're right on point, you're only marking like, you know, uh, two, three percent of your uh, greens that end up then being deleted. Only two or three percent of your greens being deleted, but only like eight or nine percent of your yellows are being deleted by the end of an identification. Then maybe some of those yellows should be bumped up to greens as well. Um, uh, or if you uh, barely use the red. Um, we had some examiners that were just barely using the red at all. And then, so then it was like, I don't know, go ahead, you know, go more into the weeds with the red color to mark out some of those. Now, granted, we were only working on, you know, uh, gnarly latents that would have all three colors. Um, but, uh, still, uh, that's, that can be an encouragement of, it's okay. You're doing really good on the greens. You're doing really good on the yellows, but um, it's okay to go into the weeds for some of the reds as well, especially when you're dealing with a tough comparison. So, um, no, great for all the feedback that I got on those two classes, uh, but the California State Division, um, uh, I was only there for Monday and Tuesday. We saw each other for all of like, you know, seven, ten minutes, something like that. Uh, but, um, uh, the two days I was there, you know, uh, it was great to see lots of people, uh, great to give a lecture and a workshop and uh, also see a lecture from Jerry Buting, one of the original attorneys from the Making a Murderer series. Uh, it was really interesting to, to see him lay out 
um, you know, their case. It was basically all of the season one arguments uh, that that he uh, discussed, and um, and then kind of chat with him for a little while afterwards. That was uh, that was really fun. Just out of curiosity, were they still on the EDTA kick that whole theory, or did they abandon that and or explain that now in a reasonable manner? No, um, that was still one of the the points that he raised um, that the the EDTA test was um, dusted off uh, from the archives and used just this one time. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, Mr. Buting basically presented the the same arguments that you would hear in season one. The uh, the blood tube not being in custody, being open to anybody walking through, not being in a secure facility, and the EDTA test, uh, but also the officers from the department that weren't supposed to be there being the ones that were, you know, on the scene and being going back multiple times, finding some of the evidence when they were on the scene and no one else had seen it earlier. All, all the same stuff that you, you'd hear from season one. So then, uh, you know, we, we we kind of saw each other at dinner that night, passed the torch, and um, uh, and then you you finished out the week uh, at that conference. Oh, it it, it was great. Uh, I went ahead and uh, gave presentations with Brendan Max, this defense attorney that I'm doing this class for uh, RSNA or through RSNA, where we Brendan and I and Carrie Hall are. You know, running through difficult testimony, and we we did did a long version of this workshop, you know, like a four hour run through, and covered a bunch of different topics. It went really well. It also told us, it gave us some good feedback on what we need to adjust for the three day class and and how you know, because and he ends up doing a lot of work because it's basically him doing all the cross examination. Right. So we need to adjust this because otherwise he's going to be doing all the heavy lifting for three days. And I just have to sit on the stand and go, that's correct. That is correct. Well, that is true. So we, we need to adjust it a little bit so that we have more break and interaction with the students a little bit and a little more lecture. And, you know, uh, so we're, we're getting the, the rhythm of that worked out right now through these workshops. But so far, it, it was really good. And a lot of people, I mean, it's funny, even though I'm playing a role, I basically play an examiner doesn't really know a whole lot and what's going on and hasn't read the papers. And then they also sort of play the average examiner. It's not fair for me in the workshop to be Glenn Langenberg with a PhD who's written 30 some articles and blah, 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 because that's not the average examiner. So my answers would be unfair to go, well, just answer it this way. Say you have a PhD, you, you know, it's, I have to make it a little more reasonable for, a, you know, your average good examiner and your kind of bad examiner. But it's, even though I'm playing a role of a bad examiner testifying, it is really uncomfortable. Like I, I start sweating and I feel like really weird and awful and the students feel bad for me. There's this really weird sympathy of, oh man, I'm glad I'm not up there. But then you see that student who goes, that's my agency. That's our background. We don't document. I don't have a science degree. I, we're not accredited. We don't do any of that. And you start to see that look on their face of, if I was to ever get an attorney like this, I'm screwed. And that's kind of what we want. I mean, we want them to learn a little bit, and then we'll try to give them some 
you know, here are some answers that you can, you know, use, but you're still in the world of hurt if you are not working on accreditation or, you know, if you're not documenting, if you're not doing these things, there, that is a bad place to be in if you're up on the stand with a really good attorney who knows this stuff. Now, I saw a couple pictures of the other conference going on at the same time. Um, now, when I was there, my two days, the other conference going on was a Model UN conference. So there are a bunch of like high school or college kids there doing Model UN stuff. Um, what was the conference going on at the same time when you were there? Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. So, on you know, we had a banquet on Thursday, which was this masquerade thing, which didn't realize until I was actually leaving to go to the conference that, oh, this is a masquerade. So, scrambled real quickly through my Halloween stuff to find some masquerade stuff. And I thought... Okay, so when when on Thursday, I started noticing, well, besides just kind of a pungent smell of B.O. and just weirdness in the halls, and I just started seeing more and more young dudes and wearing just clothes that started going, I it just started, look, I just started doing the profiling and went, is there a Dungeons & Dragons conference in town? Is there a Star Trek con thing? What programming for for minecraft i Nerds. yes yeah but then i started noticing little other things like wow that person has blue hair that person has purple hair that person is wearing a red and pink tail like a horse tail that person has a unicorn horn what the f what is going on and then it, it's the little things you notice it's the little things right and then there are more costumes coming in and then i heard that there was some um cosplay thing and went okay but what it actually was was a brony conference which i did not know what this was but it is basically men who are in love with my little pony the tv show cartoon from the 80s and 90s and so they like to dress up as my little pony characters my understanding is that they're they're more particularly fans of the series from this decade oh okay the the reboot series um uh my little pony something i don't know not entirely my area of expertise. <laughs> yeah, it, um, it was unnerving, to say the least. And, uh, boy, if anyone want to know, anyone wants a good metric of where society is today, that today's young men have no problem dressing up as My Little Pony characters. All right, that's a, that's a sign of the times. Sign the times, yeah, people. Yeah, that was so. The, no shame, no shame. The photo on our Twitter feed was that uh, of someone in the, uh, in like the uh, the furry costume. Is, it, is that yeah. just a stock photo, or is that one that you'd taken? Uh, no, I there were a bunch of people taking photos and posting, and uh, our you know our super fan Becca was there, so she was taking a bunch of photos too, and so <laughs> some of them may have come from her, but got it. Wow, it was. Yeah, it was it was it was eye opening and uh, a little scary. But then, who am I to complain? Dressed up in a 18th century Italian masquerade costume, so right? Exactly. What, what do I get to say? Who's who's the weird one now? <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, them. So there you go. So uh, 
anything else before we move into the the main body of the episode? No, I think that's enough. Okay. Uh, a couple weeks ago now, uh, we, we got on the horn and uh, talked with uh, Brandon Garrett uh, about one of his recent articles and then also just some, in general, uh, forensic science, jury-related stuff. And, and for listeners, we've reviewed a few of Brandon Garrett's papers. He's a law professor at Duke University. You know, he's got this very extensive background looking at the intersection of forensic science, you know, the, the scientific aspects and how it meets the law, legal aspects, some cases he's been involved in, juror studies, etc. So it was actually really exciting to, to get him on the phone to listen to not just his most recent paper that we were talking about, but he actually was kind enough to go back and review a number of papers and talk about the history and evolution of his research yeah it was it's it's uh we always like getting these different perspectives uh so let's cut over to uh, our interview with him all right well uh, it is time to welcome our guest today brandon garrett professor brandon garrett who is a professor of law at duke university school of law in durham north carolina hi brandon how you doing Good, good. It's great to be on this podcast. Well, we've been wanting to get you on for a while. We've we've gone over a few papers of yours in the past, and I've I've followed your publications with interest over the years. You you've always sort of hovered around topics that have been interesting to me, such as Daubert challenges or uh, some of the the juror research and. You know, usually what's going on in forensic science, you you have that nice intersection between the law and the research aspect, which uh, I, I enjoy following those papers. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's always nice to know that someone's reading them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and today we're going to discuss with you one of at least one of the papers that uh, caught our attention. Uh, it was published in Behavioral Science Law, and that was in 2019, issue 37, pages 1 through 16. And the title of the article is The Impact of Proficiency Testing Information and Error Aversions on the Weight Given to Fingerprint Evidence. And it's another – oh, and, and your authors are Gregory Mitchell – and you are listed as a co-author on that. Yeah, so just to introduce it a little bit, the, this issue of behavioral scientists and law was a special issue, and it was focused on the intersection between uh, statistics and law. Uh, so that seemed like a perfect issue to submit this uh, this piece to. Uh, in addition to being at Duke, I'm a member of a, a research consortium called CSAFE, mm-hmm. uh, which some of your listeners may know about, some may not. It's the Center for Statistics and Applications in Forensic Evidence, and it's a whole group of research researchers at a number of different universities, Iowa State, uh, University of California, Irvine, Carnegie Mellon, UVA, where I taught until last summer, and, and now Duke, all doing work at the intersection of statistics and forensic evidence. But as, as part of that, that large enterprise supported generously by NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, I'm one of the few, maybe the only token lawyer in the group, and Duke is the one law school in this collection of researchers, statisticians, psychologists, some research scientists who are looking at forensics. And so my work has always focused uh, at the intersection between the uh, the research that scientists are doing, statisticians, psychologists, and law. Um, my co-author on this paper, Greg Mitchell, is a good friend and colleague uh, at UVA, and he's both a psychologist and a lawyer. Hmm. And Brandon, did you actually practice trial law at some point then in your earlier days? I did. I didn't practice for very long. I didn't work on too many trials, but I worked on a couple. 
and, you know, learned how to question witnesses and that kind of thing. Prosecutor or defense? I was neither. Hmm. Some friends joked that I, in some ways I was more like a prosecutor because I was private attorney general. I was bringing civil rights litigation. Ah. And in fact, I filed lawsuits against both prosecutors and police as part of my work. I represented a number of people who'd been exonerated by DNA evidence. Oh, okay. And so I, would, I was often putting forensics evidence on the stand to, to show how there's a civil trial I worked on in Staten Island where we put a whole series of DNA expert experts at the Office of the Medical Examiner in New York, but they were our witnesses to show how the uh, post-conviction DNA testing exonerated the client. I see. And that was just our, our last episode. We were talking about uh, Archie Williams. Uh, which was big news here last yeah, week. Yeah, fascinating case. It's a maybe, yeah, maybe the oldest case that the Innocence Project has had in its files. Yeah, <laughs> that's what Eric said. Yeah, and the um, the law firm that I worked at for two of the years that I was in practice, I, I worked for a short time at another firm too. But I it was the law firm of Cochrane, Newfeld, and Sheck. So I worked for Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld, the founders of the Innocence Project, but at their civil rights practice where we certainly police brutality uh, cases, but also these these wrongful conviction cases filed by DNA exonerates. So I. I did that work before I went into teaching, and then in 2005, I joined the faculty at the University of Virginia, and I started to do research. Well, that makes sense. And uh, I mean, it really comes through in that then you've got that practical experience, that exposure to the forensic science, and obviously then, you know, teaching the faculty and research. So yeah, I should say that, you know, when I started teaching, one of my first big projects was to look at uh, trial transcripts in the DNA exoneree cases. And uh, the National Academy of Sciences was having a series of meetings. For some reason, they were just spending a lot of time thinking about forensic science. This is, you know, 2008. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And so uh, they were having these meetings and they were talking about forensic science and I got a phone call from them. And I really wasn't familiar with with the project of the committee that was that ended up producing the Path Forward report. And I asked uh, since I had published an early article studying all the litigation uh, brought by DNA exonerees before they were exonerated. So what claims did they bring? For example, the ones with forensic evidence in their cases, did they raise any issues about the forensics before they got exonerated? Or if they falsely confessed, did they try to challenge the confessions before they got exonerated? And uh, the, the committee called and asked if I would present to them about the testimony by forensic analysts, because by then there was some awareness that there was some reliability problems with some of the traditional forensics presented in their cases before the DNA ultimately exonerated them. And I sort of said, well, wow, that would be a lot of work to go back and actually find those trial transcripts. You know, I've just been looking at published opinions, which is much easier. Right. And they sort of indicated that, well, you know, we'd like you to actually present at one of our meetings this fall. You know, that you have three months. And I thought, three months? That's you know, <laughs> People don't do trial studies because it's so laborious. But I, I called Peter Neufeld, my former boss, and he said, no, 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 this, this National Academy thing, this is really important. Uh, if they think that that would be valuable, we should try to present the information to them. And by the way, a, a large law firm, Winston and Strawn, has just scanned all the Innocence Project files. So, so those yeah. transcripts, at least, you know, well over a hundred of them are available for research. We could try to gather many more. And so that project ended up, I ended up, you know, making lots and lots of phone calls and tracking down more than two hundred trial transcripts, and that ended up being the basis of my first book, Convicting the Innocent. But a lot of the focus there was on testimony, you know, overstated testimony right. in these exoneree cases. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, and so I wrote an early piece with Peter Neufeld and some other work talking about some cases where statistics were just wrong. You know, the, the wrong statistic was used to describe a, a serology mixture. But a lot of the cases were about overstated evidence, which has now been, you know, the subject of an FBI audit, 
you know, saying that the hairs could all have only come for the defendant or something like that. And so I think what's been interesting about the this more recent phase of my work in CSAFE is that some of the things that I thought based on looking at these innocent guys cases were really important, overstated conclusions, over the top conclusion language. Now that we, I've been turning to these jury studies, you know, Greg Mitchell and I are finding that actually overstated conclusion language doesn't seem to play a big role in how jurors evaluate forensic evidence. There are other things that jurors are looking at. And even if some of those overstated conclusions may have scientific problems and there may be reasons why a good scientist shouldn't overstate their conclusions, that's actually not what, what jurors may care about the most. And so that's, I've, I've certainly been surprised by these findings and I hope that other people find them interesting too. Yeah, that, that fits with some of the recent uh, other guests we've had on other research we've been covering too. There does seem to be this, there, there, there seems to be this, this common theme that's coming up. And that it, it seems most important to the jurors to have a narrative to understand. And if they understand this narrative, whether it's wrong or right, it tends to be the thing that they go along with. It seems to me the most important thing is that all the dots have to connect in some way. Yeah, well, there's, there's larger research about that, that the jurors are putting together a coherent story, particularly looking across types of evidence. Uh, now, what makes a particular type of evidence coherent within itself may, may also be different. That's something... That you know, there hadn't been enough research in the past, in part because a lot of the jury research on forensics, I think understandably, was focused on DNA statistics. Since when DNA came on the scene, it was new, it was exciting, and there was a lot of concern about whether jurors would understand the complicated statistics being presented in the courtroom. And so there was just a, there was an awful lot of focus on how to how to how to lay people understand DNA because it's complicated, uh, and there are big numbers involved. I think CSAFE has has been a a useful corrective to that since the focus of, of this research support is on non-DNA forensics and a lot more of the pattern evidence. And so I think it's given us, some of us researchers, a kick in the pants to start start looking at how lay people interpret more of the pattern evidence. Yeah, you said that uh, there were a few papers that led up to uh, this one that we're going to talk about them uh, mainly here today. Uh, can you give us a, just a quick overview of uh, some of those other papers leading up to this one? Sure. Sparking my interest, you know, to, to continue with the timeline, you know, once the National Academy report comes out in 2009, just about 10 years ago, in the years since, there's been a lot of ferment in the way that forensic conclusions are expressed. And I'm sure your listeners know it well. It's, it's affected all, all of us. There's just this ever-changing set of recommendations about what examiners should or can say. And that that's been true in latent fingerprinting yeah. and in, in other disciplines. And you know, plenty of disciplines obviously made changes right away when the NIS report came out saying, okay, we're not going to say zero error rate anymore. More caution is warranted. But there have been other innovations and changes. You know, one of my goals as an instructor, by the way, as part of CSAFE, I also do a lot of educational work. And so I, you know, I'm educating lawyers on how to, to work with experts on the stand. And what questions do you ask about the language an expert uses? How do you understand the language an expert uses. One of, one of the first studies I did with Greg Mitchell, it's a 2016 study in West Virginia Law Review. We just want, actually we compared lawyers and lay people, which we're not sure how well <laughs> lawyers understand what, ju- what jurors think, right. you know, any more than anyone else does. And what was really interesting was that we weren't sure what the best way to phrase the question is. And, and I'm not sure it mattered enormously, but we asked, you know, do you believe that every each person's fingerprint is unique and don't match anyone else's? 95% of lay people said yes. Do you believe that each person's DNA profile is unique? Really? 92% said yes. Now, now twins do share DNA, but we, 
we suspect that people weren't thinking about, you know, twins. You know, people placed, in that phrasing at least, a fair amount more weight on, on fingerprints than, than DNA, or at least, you know, no statistical difference, really. People, late people thought that both were extremely, extremely strong and um, associated, you know, uniqueness with the forensics to the same degree. Uh, when we asked lawyers about it, lawyers were much more skeptical. You know, uh, about half of lawyers said uh, latent fingerprinting is reliable, but a quarter said very reliable, and another quarter sort of said, eh, somewhat less so. But then when we asked them, but what do lay people think, lawyers? Uh, then they said, oh, yeah, yeah, lay people think it's, you know, infallible. Uh, you know, all lay people think it's very reliable. So that was actually okay. So lawyers lawyers are more skeptical than jurors, but lawyers know that that jurors are less skeptical. The study that really affected my thinking, though, was uh, the first one I did with uh, with Greg. It came out in 2013 called The Relative Importance of Match Language, Method Information, and Error Acknowledgement. Another one of these long social science t- titles that came out in the Journal of Empirical Legal Studies. And there we, we, we gave late people just a whole chain of different type of conclusion language on latent fingerprinting. And so whether it was, you know, a reasonable scientific certainty or just the word match or identified as or individualized or 100% certainty, we had like a dozen different ways of phrasing conclusions using language that examiners had used here and there recommendations, the swig fast standard language. And there was no statistical difference across the conditions using any of that. Simon Cole, uh, the professor at University of California, Irvine, commented when he was talking to to my students at UVA, he said, you know, it seems like the key word here is actually a fingerprint. (laughs) Once jurors hear that it's a fingerprint and there's an association made or a match or however you want to phrase it, the phrasing of the conclusion just didn't seem to matter. That's interesting. And I was surprised I, I really thought that there were people would see differences between, you know, 100% certain or match or identified. And there's a lot of anxiety now. Do we do we use the word individualization? What does it imply? Do we use the word identified? What does that imply? Do some of those words apply imply a perfect infallible match, even if you're not saying it's a perfect infallible match? It may be that people already assume that it's a perfect infallible match, and it doesn't really matter what words you say. Now, what was was also interesting, though, and it caused us to, to want to explore this more in different ways, was that when the expert said, either on direct and somewhat even more so if, if it only came out on cross, that the possibility of error or uh, association with the wrong person is a possibility, there's at least a theoretical possibility that that could happen, then we saw conviction rates go, go down significantly. Hmm. And so... You know, and I think in some ways that makes sense. If people just, you know, have never thought about it before, they assume that this technique is infallible. Everything they've heard about fingerprinting suggests that it's, you know, it's up there with DNA. It's maybe better than DNA. You know, DNA is numbers, but fingerprints are unique. <laughs> you know, numbers repeat. <laughs> right. All right. Then just even hearing that it's a, that there's a possibility that a fingerprint comparison could go wrong, even if it's only a theoretical possibility, that that really affected these jurors. And that suggested to us that, oh, well, then then maybe it's the error rate information that's important, not right. how the conclusion is expressed. Maybe maybe it doesn't matter so much. In the end, it's important then for the defense attorney to, to ask that question on cross about uh, the possibility of error. If it Obviously, if it didn't come up uh, during direct, which it wouldn't necessarily come up, that wouldn't necessarily be a, a, a question the prosecution would ask, but... Not necessarily, although I, I, I feel like I have I have read more transcripts where prosecutors figure this is 
you know, the field acknowledges that errors can happen, better for it to come out on direct. And, and, that, and, and our study certainly supported that, that if the person, you know, openly acknowledges that, you know, there is the policy, possibility that mistakes can happen, they have happened in the past, that, you know, there is the practical possibility. I think we use the term, called it a theoretical possibility in the study. Right. But, you know, admitting that on direct is better than it coming out on cross because if it comes out on cross, it looks like you're hiding something. You're only admitting it because right. the defense lawyer is asking that kind of thing. So that's, you know, that's that that's certainly the, the, the advice to prosecutors that comes out of that. Um, and with defense lawyers, you know, it suggests that, well, fighting big fights over the conclusion language may not help you very much in front of the the, the jury. It could be that confusing conclusion <laughs> language would help in other ways. But uh, right. But uh, maybe it doesn't actually, because even if the language is confusing, what what the jury may be focusing on is is one word, fingerprint. Uh, So then that sounds like that leads into this paper of then revealing proficiency test results, uh, you know, past errors uh, to the to the jury. Yeah, although if you'd like, there's even one. There's even an additional paper. There's one paper in between, which which I think might be. Go ahead. Interesting for people to hear. About. I, I think the one in between is the one we actually covered on the previous podcast. But but go ahead. Oh, okay, Brandon. so if people have already heard about it, we did a paper looking at the FR stat conclusions. Is that the one that you you talked about previously? Or you have to remind me, Glenn, that was last year. Well, I remember. Well, remember it was in that series where we talked about with, with Henry because we also talked about Henry's juror study as well that came out, and I, yeah. think I we covered them actually both in the same episode. So I. I thought I was confusing them. Okay. Maybe your paper did talk about that first. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, well, Henry may have talked about it when, because we, we certainly shared the results with him the minute we had them, you know, when, when Henry was, was first developing FR stat, he, he has, I guess, as you know, from a prior episode, it was really right. interested in the question of how would jurors understand this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we, we presented jurors in a short study at Greg Mitchell and Nicholas Skurich. Excursions at University uh, California Irvine presented just a traditional fingerprint conclusion using Swig Fast language, you know, identified as having come from the source, uh, uh, and then uh, a very strong conclusion using FR stat, providing. I mean, it's it's not exactly a probability that they came from the same source, but it's you know, as your listeners know, it's this probability having to do with how well the the latent and the suspect print compare as compared to the degree of association that you you observe and known match prints. And so uh, we weren't sure how easy that language would be for people to understand, but the probabilities can range. And, you know, we had an FR stat probability of 10, of 100, of 1,000, of 10,000, 100,000, and a million, I think. And the good news was that, you know, the, the million, the really probative, the most probative FR stat conclusion was actually weighted stronger than just a traditional okay. fingerprint conclusion and the less probative of our stack conclusions were weighted less uh so that's we also included additional language just explaining the procedure and that didn't impact the results one way or another hearing about how fr stat worked just didn't was neither here nor there hmm. and so that you know if the goal is to present something quantitative so that jurors can distinguish between stronger and weaker evidence that's good you want there to be some discrimination you want jurors to give even more weight to to the strongest possible associations and less weight to the less strong. And, you know, even in the least strong conditions, jurors were extremely disposed to convict based on, you know, a case where really the only evidence was a fingerprint. So it's not like they were, you know, acquittals, acquitting right and left 
even with the the weakest FR stack conclusions. But what was also interesting, and it, and this this is, poses a problem as forensics move towards more quantitative conclusions, is that aside from the strongest FR stack conclusions, the others were kind of where there's no statistical difference between them. Um, yeah. And so whether it was a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand, you know, it seemed like what these lay people were doing was really strong fingerprint or just regular strong fingerprint. They weren't they weren't you know carving fine distinctions based on these statistics that they were hearing. Yeah, and, that, and that's consistent with other studies on how we process statistics. Like, is it really likely to rain tomorrow, or is the or the chances kind of small? And you know, we don't we don't we're not thinking about anything much finer than that. Yeah. Maybe you'd expect people to be thinking finer than that if you're going to convict someone of a serious crime, but you know, so that you know, that was the bad news and the good news. And that, that completely makes sense with what we've seen as well, that jurors simply don't need that level of precision when it comes to these statistics. And within our field, there's so much arguing about, well, is it 10,000? And if, if I redo this, will it now be 10,005 or 10,010? It just, it, it, like you said, neither here nor there, because they just think in big swath, because they're trying to incorporate so much other information. It's just, it, like you said, just boldly is it really strong kind of moderate or really weak and then they'll get folded into a bunch of other complex decisions they have to make about other evidence and, and you know i suspect um you know one an additional impetus for for looking at these questions was that the pcast report made this recommendation that look uh, for any technique there's going to be some element of judgment and experience playing into the analysis just because a technique involves subjectivity doesn't mean it's not valid but you have to measure how accurate those judgments are and inform the jury that there's a error rate associated with, with any technique. Right. Uh, and in response, you know, there's been lots of criticism. Were the two studies in latent fingerprinting designed well enough? They certainly weren't blind studies. One of them, the Miami-Dade one, had many fewer participants. What was the quality of the prints used in those studies? Are there other ways that those error rates could have been calculated? And of course, one response might be that, well, you know, even if you get slightly different error rate numbers, jurors aren't going to be focusing on, is it 1 in 18, 1 in 306, 1 in 500, 1 in 700? It may just be that, yeah, there, there are some errors that happen sometimes. Uh, it, it might actually be that the precision that the PCAST report calls for, and, you know, if there are six more studies, would you have to average the results or present something about all six black box studies or all 12 or 30? Maybe maybe it's not that important as long as you give the gist of it. Yeah, I suspect you're right there. I I really do. All right. Well, then let's let's start in with with this paper again. It's the impact of proficiency testing information and error aversions on the weight given to fingerprint evidence. Essentially, you uh, you presented uh, participants of the study with just made up proficiency testing info, saying this examiner got everything right or a certain number wrong, and kind of measured to see how that affected their their view of the evidence. But why don't you give, give more little detail into, into um, you know, how you set things up and then uh, what you found in the paper. One, one, one question that we had, particularly after that first study, suggesting that jurors are much more interested in just how reliable is this? What's the error rate? And then in all the, the verbiage associated with conclusions, well, we wondered, well, you'd, you'd think that they would, jurors would be particularly interested in, well, how, how good is this person at what they do? What is the proficiency of this person? Separately with, with colleagues at, at UVA, we've been looking at CTS proficiency tests. Um, my colleagues there, Dan Murray and Brett Gardner and Sharon Kelly, have even included additional questions to survey people who take those proficiency tests. You know, how challenging do you think each of these prints are? And 
how challenging is this test? What else would you want to see in the test? In the study that we did, we didn't provide jurors with information about real proficiency testing. We used a kind of a highly artificial fake report because, you know, in real proficiency testing, obviously, it's not <laughs> like you get a score. You don't get an A or a B or a C. It's, you know, you're not uh, necessarily even taking the test under individual conditions. You know, some smaller labs sometimes like to save money by sort of doing a group test. And obviously, you'd ideally want right. to know how a how one person performed. So we, we, we had a kind of an idealized fictional proficiency test where someone it would have been it would have taken a lot of time to do it, right? There were a hundred trials on this test. And so I don't think anyone is taking a hundred trials you know, on a proficiency test right. these days. Brandon, can I ask you a question? Did you do that deliberately so that you would have just a clear percentage so they could do yeah. the simple math in their head at two percent? Exactly. Okay. We, we, All right. we wanted to make the math really easy. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. We wanted to make the math easy. That was that was that was the thinking. And so yeah, we wanted to do something that we thought would be an elegant test where we just had different scores on the test and the the, the examiner, you know, it was a very simple description of a case where basically the only evidence from a robbery was a fingerprint recovered on a gun that was dropped. And then the fingerprint examiner explains the conclusion and says, you know, I've identified this as having come from the source. And by the way, I, I from time to time get get tested on proficiency. Here's here's information about the results of a recent test. And then the test results are summarized. And so the test results are described as, you know, how many out of a hundred did this person get right? And we, and you're asking me about this before the show, you know, we, we described both erroneous identifications and mistaken non-matches of so false negatives and false positives. We're curious whether, whether jurors would care about one versus another. And obviously in the fingerprint community, the scientific community, there's right. a lot more focus on false positives. You know, the PCAST report, when they say this is the bottom line that jurors need to hear about, they say it's it's about the it's the false positives that jurors really need to hear about. Yeah, Eric, Eric and I do not agree with that. So it's kind of nice that the paper's highlighting that aspect. Well, and, and obviously there are, I mean, there's some evidence, including in the follow-up Eulery studies, that there are more false negatives than false positives. Oh, plenty more. And, and, you know, over caution or there's also, right, there can be it's harder to define them, maybe, but there can be false inconclusives. True, uh, where it's later determined that there was there was really good evidence there. That and we see that in you know in doing the work as well. Uh, you know, Glenn and I both have seen, and in giving classes out, is, is that the erroneous exclusions just happen much more frequently than the erroneous IDs. And there's a lot of reasons behind that, but that's that's definitely uh, uh, you know true in in practice as well as the Eulery studies. We saw that in practice. Uh, my colleagues, Dan Murray and Sharon Kelly, my UVA colleagues, and I d did a paper co-authored with several folks at the the uh, Houston lab, the Houston Forensic Science Center. Uh -huh. And we described how, you know, when there were when there were disagreements in conflict resolution, it was often about, about mistaken non-matches. Right. And, and that they're just, you know, another thing I think people, plenty of lawyers don't appreciate is just what vast numbers of latents come in that are not of sufficient quality to examine. And, and that sometimes another set of eyes on them or another look at them causes examiners to realize, actually, no, there, there's, there's information there. But when you're, when you're overburdened with vast amount of, of, of latents that maybe shouldn't have lift, been lifted in the first place, it's easy to default to like, nope, another one that's not of value. But, you know, we, we, Greg and I had thought, I guess we're on the same wavelength, that we thought it, that false negatives are important. And we wondered whether jurors think that they are. And... 
if jurors understood the language in our descriptions of these proficiency tests, right, they really weren't distinguishing between false negatives and false positives. They just they were just hearing about errors and errors are errors. And so we didn't see that they placed this very different weight on, on false positives as opposed to false negatives, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, if you're going through the the table one in here and you're just looking down the the line, you know, you had uh, your participants look at uh, or give give what their thoughts were that they basically the question was the likelihood the defendant left the fingerprints at the scene, and there was a, a scale of one to eleven, uh, less to more likely. I'm assuming you did one to eleven so that you could have a middle score at at six. I think that was why. Wow, I I actually thought it was a Spinal Tap reference. <laughs> that would have been a good reason to there you go uh, i think my wife made that same joke um, when i was talking to her about the paper and uh, so either you got 100 percent right you got 98 right 92 right 86 right or 66 right so very you know from very you know, very high perfect to you know almost coin toss you know yeah. getting things right and by the way right you'd, you'd expect if I mean, I think we, we would be really disturbed if we found that someone had only gotten 66% right on a, right. On a proficiency <laughs> test. You'd figure this is right. this is like a, there, there needs to be a serious intervention with this examiner if they're only getting 66% right. Uh, but I mean, it's sort of one thing that jumps out right away, though, here is that although these lay people gave less weight to the evidence, the worse the person did on the proficiency tests, you know, even at the, the very lowest level of proficiency, which is really shockingly low. You know, people are still fairly disposed to right to convict. True that they, 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 it was still above the six. Um, you know, the the halfway point oh, yeah. uh, of your scale, just yeah. barely, but but still. But, but still, like it wasn't. I mean, you might you might figure if someone's getting getting that many tests wrong, like maybe their conclusions have like no value. They're just a really unreliable right. person. But no, no, no. It was just well, they have a little bit a little bit less value than the person who has you know decent proficiency. I think it again goes to like, you know, jurors attach a lot of weight to fingerprint evidence and it, uh, right. And they're going to be highly prone to convict when they hear anything about fingerprint evidence. And so you can still tell them a lot about real problems with the evidence and they will take that into account and they will take that into account in a rational way, but they'll be walking back from a position of just assuming that it's perfect. Yeah. So it does mean that you can tell them a lot about the limitations of the evidence and people are still going to be highly disposed. To and and that, that's a good message for our listeners to hear, because so many are fearful that if, you know, it, that either they won't be able to talk about errors in, you know, in a meaningful way, or the, you know, the questions that come aren't, won't be very helpful. And that they're sometimes just worried about discussing errors. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we, we were just talking about this. We had a, we had a conference, uh, a CSAFE conference where Peter Stout from the Houston Forensic Science Center was talking about the blind proficiency testing that they do there. And how you know, the goal this year is to have 5% of caseloads be, be a test. And some folks from some other uh, labs were saying, well, wait a minute. If you're doing that many proficiency tests, you know, there are going to be errors. And then if an uh, examiner makes an error on one of these tests, won't they be ruined? Won't it be impossible for them to testify in court ever again? Because if you're not perfect, then you're fallible. And if you're fallible, what are you doing in court? You're, you're, this person will be ruined. Will you have to fire them? What will happen? And, uh, you know, Peter Stout and the others from Houston Forensic Science were like, no, 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 no. No one's going to be ruined. Those errors will, in fact, be, you know, the results will be available 
you know, on our website, everything is transparent. And what we want to highlight is that we have a culture of detecting errors so that they don't turn into real ones and to, to responding to them, to admitting that they happen and to remediating as part of a system of quality control. Yeah. And if you have a system of quality, you don't claim perfection without testing it. Instead, we're constantly testing it and responding to it. And we think that jurors will pick up on that. And when we describe what we do to invest in quality throughout the lab, we think people will be impressed. Uh, I, I agree. And and, and then I, I chimed in about the study saying, and actually, someone could not just fail one test, but <laughs> uh, you could have an examiner that our, 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 fictional, our fictitious examiners are failing you know, a lot of tests and jurors are not, they're, they're not ruined. Jurors are more skeptical, but but they're they're certainly not throwing it out. I think that's you know that that little pieces, little errors, uh, you know, will be, start to be caught with with a, with a system like that. And then there's you know obviously debate about if five percent or one percent or you know how many samples you know are needed to put through the system and add additional work into the system. But overall, I, in my opinion, the entire quality system with verification and reviews and and everything that's in place that when a little error occurs on this proficiency that they don't know as a test, that the vast majority of the time it's going to get picked up by the existing quality assurance uh, system and just give further just give further evidence of how that existing quality assurance uh, mechanisms uh, are already doing a great job at. Yeah, I think that could actually be an interesting follow-up study that we could do to ask jurors about, about blinding. There have been some studies done suggesting that just explaining blinding, uh, not proficiency testing, but just explain that blinding was done versus potentially biasing information being told to the examiner. Jurors don't really get a lot out of that. But that may be that in general, and I've seen that in these studies with Greg Mitchell, that explaining methods in detail just doesn't go that far. It kind of people tune out when they're hearing these details about how how a method works. If it's more tied to the question that they care about most, just how reliable is this evidence? It may be that uh, that explaining what we do to make sure that the evidence is reliable could be could be really powerful. So, the just to get into some of the numbers here, uh, Figure One uh, in your paper shows just the the summary of all this data with the perfect proficiency. The uh, participants saying, you know, belief that uh, that it's the, likely that the prints came from the robber up at eight point eight seven. Uh, on your score of one to eleven, your uh, and then it you know, drops off quite a bit down to the ninety-eight and ninety-two percent correct at eight point two three and seven point nine nine, and then dropping even further to seven and a half, and then finally down to seven for the uh, people that were only getting sixty-six percent correct on the test. Uh, and I'm not, you know, kind of makes sense to me. Uh, I'm not sure. Brandon, what what you what your thoughts were when you first saw the this result uh, charted, or Glenn when you saw this, but you know a big drop off from a hundred percent down to ninety eight, about the same as ninety two, and then further drop offs down to uh, uh, down to the the low end. Yeah, I and mean, I think what's really striking about this is that it, I mean, when we have the tables of it, it really looks like a ladder just stepping down, down, down. It's a people talk about how jurors don't understand statistics and that they're, it's all over the place. And we saw that a little bit with FR stat, with not a lot of careful distinguishing between different probabilities. Right. But I think this is a type of quantitative information which is much easier for people to understand and that they can relate to. Just how many did this person get wrong in the past? 
But to see this very clean result where lay people in different groups, you know, these are obviously 100 people got one condition and 100 people got another condition. To see this 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 very consistent pattern, it's not what you normally see with jurors, but, but I think it does make some sense that this is the information that the lay people are really interested in hearing about. And I know you got you have to go soon, so I wanted to touch on on the the one aspect of the paper that you know I, I thought could have some improvement, just to you know take some constructive criticism here, and that's in the in the information that was given to the to the participants. It gives a it lists out and it says you know this is what the examiner did on their proficiency test. This is their score, and then it goes in and describes in paragraph that they got this many correct, which means that. They correctly concluded that the prince did or did not match in 98, 98% of the trials or 98 of the trials. One print correct, incorrectly concluded that they matched when they didn't. And then another print incorrectly concluded that they did not match when they did. But then in the summary of the, in the next paragraph down, as listed as uh, accurate identifications, 98 out of 100, I think more precise language would have been accurate conclusions because what you're saying is that not all 98 or not all 100 trials were identifications but 98 times they got it right and saying it did match or did not match and then same thing with erroneous identifications two out of 100 pairs yeah um so yeah i I agree with you there we then had the error breakdown which i think is a little bit clear and i think the language above is clear um i think i think especially given the consistent differences we saw across conclusions jurors were getting getting the information they they needed out of this but 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 i do think that that language could have been a little bit yeah eric if if i could too sure. i because, because i think i think you're right brandon that it wouldn't have mattered the, the results wouldn't change one lick i think eric you might have even have said at one point uh, either to me or elsewhere this is a good example if the paper itself since it deals with fingerprints had during its peer review had a subject yeah. matter look at it, this would have this would have been that technical language that a fingerprint examiner could have caught easily during peer review and made a very simple suggestion to the authors. So do you guys uh, offer here on the air to look at my next uh, research design before I run it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'd love to send it to you. you know, there's, there's one other piece of this study, which I think would be interesting to to highlight to people, sure. which is uh, we, we asked these people, you know, a bunch of things, you know, so we, we recruited we used a, a, a service Qualtrics to so – these aren't just a convenient sample of people on MTurk or something like that. We paid quite a bit more to recruit people who are demographically representative from okay. all four geographic regions and representative based on age and gender, race. Because of that, you, you, you get a much more diverse sample of people than you often get in psych studies where it's you know undergraduate people in the – Psych yeah. research pool right. or people on M- MTurk, much greater mixture of people of all different political ideologies. And what we see is, you know, so we have always been asking these experiments, and we've done enough of them now that we're writing up a paper just about this topic. We ask people, which type of error do you think is mo- is worse in the criminal justice system? Yeah, I saw that. You know, uh, convicting an innocent person is that the worst thing that can happen, uh, or failing to give, convict a, a guilty person? Or both equally the same, and and this goes to you know are false positives or false negatives more important to you or not? Yeah. Uh, in general, not 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 as to you know a forensics, but just in general, which type of error is more troubling to you? And we see this across these studies that about half of people say both equally the same, 
And quite a few people, you know, sometimes a quarter, sometimes a third say, actually, you know, failing to convict a guilty person, that's the worst thing that can happen. Wow. I want to make sure some guilty guy isn't roaming the streets. It tends to be the uh, people with graduate degrees, people who are more liberal, who are the, you know, maybe 25, 30% who say convicting the innocent is the worst type of error. Uh, but it's, you know, the vast majority of people think that both types of error are equally the same or that convicted, that failing to convict a guilty person is the worst thing that can happen. And then when you we look at, well, how do people evaluate the evidence depending on their error versions? People who think that failing to convict an, a guilty person is the worst type of error uh, are much more likely to convict. They are you know, more conviction prone hmm. uh, across the board. It makes sense. And, which makes sense. So, you know, right. uh, we care a lot about expressing scientific evidence appropriately and presenting it in a careful way to, to jurors. But it's a it's just a reality that that some jurors walk into the courtroom highly prone to convict, and you can't depend on the reasonable doubt instruction, you know, to to push them in the direction of being cautious. They're not cautious. They you know, some some people will just their preference is come on, this must be a guilty person. You don't let guilty people go. That's a terrible cost to society. Hmm. And so, you know, I think that that's also a, something that's cautionary to both prosecutors, defense lawyers, experts, to everyone that that people have very different risk, risk thresholds uh, as jurors. That's, that's really fascinating too. Uh, Cause I mean, you, the entire criminal justice system is, it seems to be set up on the, it's better to, to let a hundred guilty men go free than convict one innocent person. But that doesn't seem to be what our society is reflecting anymore. No, some people think that and some people don't. And uh, to be sure, uh, I, I think that the, the positive news is that, People may walk into the courtroom thinking in the abstract that, you know, the main problem is setting guilty people free in our society, or that's the main harm. But that's what they may think in the abstract. When they when they hear particulars about a case, they may be moved. And, you know, even the people who were most disposed towards conviction, they were moved in a very rational way by this error information. And they were, sure. less, you know, they were just like the people who were most liberal and most concerned with convicting the innocent. They, they were affected by by information about proficiency. That said, overall, they were more likely to convict. All right. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for, for coming on our show and, and talking about uh, the paper. Really, really do appreciate it. And and yeah, that, that standing invitation is definitely out there to, uh, to take a look at uh, any study designs. Because overall, I think this is a great paper. I, I just, you know, with that, just that one little concern I, I, is one little just part I thought could have been uh, improved and to have just less doubt as to the difference between or whether the people saw a difference between the different two different errors yeah and, and that's something we want to explore more i also want you know i'm working on a, a new study right now which isn't quite ready to get into but another question is you know how how much of what we're seeing here reflects the strong views people have about latent fingerprinting evidence if we look at other forensics what role does error rate information play uh, you know, it could be that hearing error rate information for forensics that people are less familiar with actually causes them to place more weight on the evidence because people walk into the courtroom thinking that that sounds kind of unreliable to me. And they hear about error rate information and they think, oh, well, that's actually that, that this has been studied. We actually have research on this that that makes right. me feel better about it. So I think that's that that's something I'm looking at in a new experiment. And uh, we're also doing some studies where we have video of experts since I think it is different just to see someone testifying rather than read a transcript or read a description of their testimony. So 
we still have we still have plenty of work to do yeah, that's great yeah but thank you so much for coming on and and um we hope to when those come out uh, to have you you know back for uh for more discussions on on what else you find or you know if you're not available we'll probably just talk about <laughs> about it uh on our show but um i'll make the time yeah and very good and uh uh so once again brandon uh thanks and uh we'll talk to you again here uh, very soon with your next paper great thank you yep bye brandon thank you for having me all right uh that was great uh thank you brandon again for for joining us um um and and absolutely, if uh, you know, we would be happy to take a look at anything else that you have coming up uh, here in the future to to offer you know our perspective on um, papers, study design, anything like that. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that that can only improve uh, you know things uh, going forward from here of what you've already been working on and and what you've got coming down the road as well. Yeah, I, I thought that was really insightful. That it actually really did help understand the the paper, their motivations, and the previous research, and kind of where you know where they've been going with this. And with any of these things, it's never just one study. You have you do have to look at right. multiple studies. You have to look at the you know the underlying theme of these. You know, to to understand um, you know these very nuanced issues in science, and and I do think that the the phrasing, you know, of of uh, the you know the the questions there may have been partially, uh, you know, may partially explain why there wasn't this um, difference between. Uh, what the potential jurors thought of uh, the different two different types of errors, um, but you know, there's there's no real way to tell um, without, like you're saying, follow up research to kind of add to the bigger picture, um, and um, and every additional study will kind of build and and put more into focus, uh, you know, what the average potential. Uh, American juror thinks of uh, these kinds of issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I I do sort of side with him on on his explanation for it. That you know, while it it it, it could have been more exact in language, I don't, I don't I don't know that it made that I don't know that it made an impact. But who, again, like you said, you know, we don't know. But I I pro it probably didn't really move the needle that much. And that's the the only reason I think for most of the of the paper, it's not really going to end up mattering, um, especially looking at the diff the different numbers of errors on how right. the jurors reacted to that. Right. But since it kind of, it, it was an unnecessary distraction. Right. And since it kind of equates or puts these two types of errors into the bad ID category yeah. in just one of the sections, then that that kind of lessens the yeah. the strength of being able to say jurors didn't see a difference between these two types of errors. So, okay. um, like I said, it did, I don't think it affected other parts of the study. It was just this one little question of did jurors you know see a difference? Did they did they consider a difference of the types of errors? I'm just yeah, fair point. Not entirely sure. So, yep. so again, thanks again, Brandon, and um, we look forward to reading more stuff and. Uh, maybe even uh, getting him back on the show uh, down the road. So, um, Glenn, uh, upcoming stuff. What do you want to talk about that's coming here soon? Well, I, I'll, I'll throw out just 
uh, two things real fast. Uh, I mean, we just keep adding stuff to RonSmithAndAssociates.com, so it's just it, – but it's it's good. That's all good. Right. Uh, the big one probably coming up is an advanced ASB class in the D.C. metro area. It's actually near Dulles in Virginia. So out, out on the East Coast, if anyone has been interested in taking that class for a while but can't really – Get out of town. We'll be doing it for uh, the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, but it's out there. Uh, that's a great. Yeah, yeah. That's a great group there. And if you if you do uh, travel and join them there, make sure you get a tour of their lab. You will be floored at their very uh, large scale operation for doing paper. Yeah, uh, yeah. For doing nin prints, it's just like. I mean, you get it. You have to do it on a large scale, but man, that's a, that's a lot of paper. Yeah. So that's July twenty second through the twenty sixth in the the middle of summer, and then the other one that I wanted to mention again is this new one that's going pretty quickly. This is September sixteenth through the eighteenth in the Denver area in Golden, Colorado. This is this class with Brendan Max, the defense attorney. So it's uh, right. advanced testimony issues, uh, three day course there. And uh, that that one is going to that one's going to sell out. So I would encourage you to get your your registrations in as soon as possible at ronsmithandassociates.com. Coming up down the road, I'm I'm talking to people in St. Louis and Tampa. So keep an eye out for on my website rayforensics.com to see uh, exactly where I'll pop up next. But uh, there'll at least be two more classes uh, through the rest of the year. Uh, for uh, for the exclusionology class, and if you're interested in bringing that or uh, gyro to uh, to your agency, you can go to rayforensics.com and you know send me uh, information or just email directly email me directly Eric at rayforensics.com. Uh, but also but also this summer we'll actually be both be in Reno for the the big IAI conference in August. There'll be the four-hour version of the, uh, the gyro in Photoshop class there. So that we can't necessarily go into the same amount of depth as a full two-day class, but there's still, you know, practice with the tool, get feedback on on how often you're using all the, those uh, different colors of gyro. So hopefully see a lot of people at the, uh, the conference in Reno. Cool. All right. So uh, with that, we'll close out uh, this episode. Thank you guys for being patient to getting to it. Uh, but I guess good things come to those who wait. And uh, we will work out our schedules and sync up our our, <laughs> <laughs> our, uh, our cycles to, to get uh, uh, a more regular uh, Flow. Uh, podcast out to people. So uh, follow us at Double Loop Pod uh, on Twitter. Uh, you can email us uh, anything, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Next one up is episode 200. Uh, so uh, send us some emails uh, with your, your thoughts back on 200 episodes. Uh, we'll, we'll read them off on the air. And uh, you can send those to eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. And remember, the, the opinions expressed here are those of the speakers and not necessarily any agency we work for. But with that, I will close out and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.